Welcome to Radio Survivor, the sound of strong communities. My name is Paul Reismandel. Hello, everybody. It's Eric Klein here on Radio Survivor, and we're talking about the possibility, maybe you never dreamed, that you, you could build a tiny radio station totally legally in, yes. in your home or town. Very tiny radio stations Part that 15. you can operate without a license that can reach your neighborhood perhaps even or at very least your block your building and you don't have to worry about the fcc and you can pretty much play anything you want it's not a fantasy yeah it is this is, it is reality not pirate radio it's it can licensed. be community it is unlicensed it's unlicensed but, it's, but legal. it's legal it's legal yes that's right there's all sorts of communications that are unlicensed sure your wireless router at home is your unlicensed baby monitor. your baby monitor is unlicensed your cb radio is unlicensed uh and this is They're just another category in the 1990s yes they're all unlicensed they're all legal and so is there also the ability to do this on the broadcast dial to do this where people normally tune in to radio. Neighborhood radio. Neighborhood radio. Mini radio. Tiny radio is what we're talking about. And on the line from Norwalk, Connecticut, via Skype is Bill DeFelice. He is the webmaster of hobbybroadcaster.net. And he's going to help us understand a class of broadcasting that anyone anyone in at least in the united states can participate in without a license making radio uh, uh making radio broadcasting on the airwaves like tomorrow if you feel like it without a license legally today completely legally completely within the bounds of the law and this is what hobbybroadcaster.net is dedicated to and bill's going to tell us much more about this so tell us a little bit about this this is a kind of broadcasting which is We've talked about on the show before, we call it part 15, and that's just sort of a shorthand. Can you briefly explain, you know, to us what part 15 broadcasting is? Certainly. And uh, thanks for having me, first of all. Part 15, it kind of dates back to when the FCC made these rules back in the late 30s for people to actually have these devices called phono oscillators which allowed them to listen to records of all things through uh, their radios in their homes. Huh. Through, the, through the years, the, the rules got expanded, and Part 15 not only just covers the AM and FM broadcast spectrum, it actually pretty much covers the entire radio spectrum that the FCC polices. Bill, can you tell me a little bit more about phono oscillators? Is, so that's well, a wireless stereo system for your home in the 1930s? Well, manufacturers made phonographs, of course, that uh, played regular records at that time. The phono oscillator was either an optional piece or some phonographs actually had it contained within the unit itself, Uh which was basically just a small low-power transmitter that allowed it to be heard on a nearby AM radio. Wow. So wireless technology in the – I'm just going to be smiling about that for the rest of the day, that people had wireless in their homes – and believe, and believe it or not, another use that they used very early on was babysitting monitors. Yeah, in, but back, uh, back in the first half of the 20th century, not the second. But the babysitting monitor actually came into style very early to mid-50s. Wow. I would have guessed like the 80s. And so this is oh, a way right, that sorry, the FCC guys. carved out for people to be able to use the airwaves without a license. Correct. In their homes. 
in their homes. And you said that this is, you know, on the AM band, it's on the FM band, it's elsewhere. So if this is the case, like, like what are the constraints on this? Because I mean, I'm sure people are thinking, well, wait a second, at what point does it become pirate radio in quotes, right? Does it become the kind of unlicensed broadcasting, which the FCC frowns upon? How do you manage to be somebody using the airwaves legally under this part 15 rule? Well, there are three rules that pretty much I mean, there's a bunch of rules for Part 15, but there are three rules that come and encompass the broadcast band. There are two primarily for most people for the AM band. Uh, that would be Part 15209, which governs your use of the airwaves by a field strength measurement. Another more generic rule is Part 15.219, which is governed more by the input power of the actual transmitting device that the final output can't consume more than 100 milliwatts and a combination of antenna length and ground lead length can't exceed well it used to be 10 feet back in the old days and then when they adopted metrics it winds up being 9.84 feet which is three meters so let's kind of untangle this so that first one you said is about field strength and and to my understanding and please correct me if i'm wrong that is basically how strong is the signal at a certain distance away from where the transmitter is is that correct Exactly. And then the other part, it sounds like it's all about your transmitter, right? It's all about, and people sort of understand that like on the FM band or on the AM band, you know, you think about a big AM station might have 50,000 or 100,000 watts of power. And you said that under these rules, the amount of power you'd be allowed to have is 100 milliwatts, which is one tenth of a watt. Is that correct? That's correct, but the important thing to keep in mind, that's the actual input power of the final output transistor or output device in the transmitter, so you're not getting 100 milliwatts out to the antenna. Okay, so that's really technical, right? But it means basically, basically small. It means, it means very small, and then you have these other constraints on the antenna. So it seems like the antenna, you know, an AM broadcast antenna, if you go to an AM station, is going to be... It's going to be tens of meters tall, if not more so, right? Because of the long wavelengths of AM radio. And here, if I'm going to start up a part 15 legal unlicensed AM radio station, I'm limited to three meters in length for my antenna, right? So a little taller than, than like your average person, the average adult. Is that correct? Correct. And the reason they do that is because at the limited uh, length of the antenna and ground lead, you have a very inefficient method of transmitting the signal. So that in itself is helping limit the actual field strength that you can achieve under that condition. And, and the ground lead, that's just another piece of the antenna, right? That, that basically connects it to ground, literally, like what the, the ground or like a grounded outlet or something like that. Is that correct? Correct. Because with AM, you you need to have a ground wave to be able to emit a signal. So an ungrounded transmitter would be even more inefficient to the point where you would be lucky to get maybe tens of feet, if not, you know, very small fractions of a foot compared to an antenna system with a ground and of course the radiator. Now this is all very technical. So, so let's say I'm somebody who is interested in in starting my own little AM radio station. Maybe it's for the reason that they had in the 1930s that I want to uh, broadcast into my own radios around the house. Or maybe I'm thinking, hey, it would be kind of fun. I could just kind of broadcast to my neighbors. How do I, how do I, as sort of maybe somebody who's not a broadcast engineer, how do I ensure that maybe I do I build a transmitter? Can I buy a transmitter? What do I do to try and do this? 
Well, if you have the background that you could build one, the FCC allows you to build up to five transmitters for personal use. Really? I did not know that. That's news to me. How do they count five? In your home or throughout the uh, known universe? Well, that's a very interesting question. I would I would <laughs> consider the fact that it's probably within your own possession. Yeah. And you can't go in and sell them. So you could build one if you have that. But let's say uh, I'm not someone who's going to design and build his own transmitter or even put one together from a, a schematic I find online or something. How else? I mean, can I can I buy a, a transmitter that's ready to go that that will keep me legal? Most certainly, there are there are several manufacturers that would give you the ability to just buy the transmitter and, and actually, for lack of a better term, you'd become an appliance operator. Everything from a, a small talking house transmitter, which used to be very popular with real estate agents for selling homes, mm, all right. the way up to very high-end AM transmitters, which could crest up to $1,000. So if I'm into spending $1,000... You know, so if I'm going to spend a lot of money on this, relatively speaking, why would I? What 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 do I get for that thousand dollars? That maybe something that's a hundred or two hundred bucks your, on your personal AM radio yeah, yeah. broadcasting. What, what, what's toy. the difference there? Well, I don't know if you've read on my website. I actually did a comparison several years ago called the AM Transmitter Challenge on HobbyBroadcaster.net. The top transmitter was one made by Hamilton called the Rangemaster. That's a very high-end transmitter. In fact, it's probably the most expensive transmitter, but it's a very efficient transmitter for the type of constraints you're dealing with with the limited antenna and ground lead. So you actually get a better field strength output with that because of the engineering involved. And does that mean essentially you can broadcast further than you might with the less expensive one? Correct. So we start talking about like, oh, you can broadcast further. I'm sure there will be some people who are like, well, I don't want to get that knock at my door. You know, I don't want I don't want all of a sudden to have somebody from the FCC knocking at my door because someone complained about my AM station. Is, is that like a risk with one of these? Well, the only time you'll probably get an issue will be with. Well, there's there's several different issues. If you you could get a, a ham radio operator who might feel that they're somehow the radio police and they take a dislike to your signal for whatever reason, be it programming or whatever. Uh, The other probable complaint that might get you with an FCC agent would be an actual broadcast operation, a licensed station who feels that what you're doing with your part 15 station is a threat. Unfortunately, you know, the thing that they don't realize is people put up these part 15 stations because they're tired of the same homogenous stuff that goes on with commercial radio. And so what you're saying then is that even though, uh, say, an amateur radio operator or a local commercial operator might object, they don't have standing. Meaning uh, what you're doing if you're using one of these specifically designed transmitters is, is utterly legal. That You should rest easy from that standpoint if you, if you decide to get one and operate one. Even if you built your own transmitter and it was legal, you would be fine. But the thing about one of the commercial transmitters is they have been certified by the FCC. They've submitted test results. So it shows that under operating conditions, they, you know, they're compliant with Part 15 for the regulations that dictate on the AM band. And if you did wind up having a field inspector show up, as long as your installation is legal – all you'd have to do is just show them the paperwork for the transmitters with the certification number. And like I said, as long as the installation is legal, you should be good to go. So it's like follow the instructions that come with your transmitter. Is that effectively it? <laughs> Pretty much. Although I have seen in the past and some of the manufacturers have actually rewritten their instructions. Some of them had 
mention about placing their transmitters up on antenna masts or towers. And that can be a gray area depending on how you install it because Obviously, if the transmitter is up high, you need to have a long ground lead, and that in itself would violate the regulation for 15219. I see. We're on the line with Bill DeFelice of HobbyBroadcaster.net, and we're talking about tiny radio stations that you can legally build and broadcast on. They're called Part 15. They broadcast on the AM dial, if the kids uh, still know what that is. Bill, you mentioned that the, uh, from what I know about the FCC uh at least um, in the recent past, there aren't that many field agents uh, in the field. Yeah, they're not, out, they're not out patrolling the streets looking for your Part 15 AM Yeah, you're station. much more likely to get a speeding ticket. <laughs> um, but that's neither here nor there. Why? I love this. So you, you talked about how in the 1930s, Bill, uh, people uh, would use these to, to broadcast their records uh, straight into their radios or possibly as baby monitors. Why, why do people build these tiny radio stations uh, these days? A lot of people are, like I had mentioned before, they're just uh, disillusioned with what commercial radio is bringing them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Some people do it so, believe it or not, they may not even have uh, a music collection or a record collection to play through it. They may do it just for convenience. If they have something they like on the internet, they may just stream it off their computer into this transmitter so they can listen around about the house or the garage or, you know, on their nearby property so they can enjoy it wirelessly. Yeah, it's just a, it's an alternate wireless technology that sort of um, sub rosa. It's like it's always been around in our in our country, but uh, I certainly haven't thought about playing with it. And, and here's my question, though. You know, you say, you know, a lot of the applications you're sort of talking about here are people playing it through their radios in their own house. Is it really a broadcast technology from the sense of like that you could expect to have an audience? How, how far could you maybe expect a truly legal, fully within FCC spec part 15 AM signal to go? Well, there are some variables to go along with that. And of course, one of the biggest variables is the ground as far as ground conductivity and the grounding system that you use for the actual transmitter. I'm here in the Northeast. And if you were to look, the FCC actually has a map of what predicted ground conductivity is. Huh. And and when we did our, our uh, transmitter challenge, where we did the transmitter uh, testing, our ground conductivity is the pits up here in Connecticut. And on a car radio with the uh, the transmitter that tested out the best with no modulation, which means no audio, we received the signal on a car radio just about at a mile. Bill, Bill DeFelice of HobbyBroadcaster.net, what, are you saying that the ground, the literal dirt of Connecticut is bad for grounding your radio? Is that what I'm understanding? As far as from a transmission perspective, that's correct. Yeah, I mean, that's part of the, the signal, right? It actually, AM signal, especially in the daytime, if you I'm not the dirt. incorrect, transmits along the ground. At night, it tends to bounce off the ionosphere. That's yeah. why they go so far. And so from region to region, I used to live in Illinois. We just have a homonym problem right now where we're talking about the dirt and uh, grounding yeah, some, yeah. An electronic but it's But equipment. it's l the same thing. <laughs> uh, when I really? lived in Illinois, central Illinois, exceptionally good ground conductivity. If you look at that same and, FCC map, because it used to be uh, it's swamps that were drained. <laughs> Go ahead, Bill. <laughs> and what people can do to kind of overcome the, or at least try to augment making themselves have a better ground is they place what they call radials in the ground, which are copper wires. Hmm 
normally attached to a ground rod out from their transmitter obviously as long as they can most people who are involved in the hobby are usually limited by the available land but the ground radials help their signal get out in lieu of the, the dirt not having the ground conductivity we would hope we'd have well, so let's go back to sort of a more typical case. Somebody who isn't super technical enough to put these things together, kind of understands the basic theory. Buys these things being buys a talking house stations. or even buys a range master, one of the high end uh, AM part 15 transmitters. They can expect at best a mile, right? And in many cases, probably a little less than that, maybe a few blocks, a quarter mile, half mile. Is that about correct? Pretty much so. Although I've had heard cases of a compliant part 15 installation getting out upwards of two miles or more. But of course, there's the things between the soil conductivity and how much did they put into their ground system? Did they have a boatload of radials? Do they have more than one ground rod? Do they have ground rods that are connected together and driven further into the earth? Wow. Right. Did they, are they, are they really, are they geeking out? Are they, are they, are they sort of like hackers, right? Or, you know what I mean? Uh, you know, really getting into it or are they somebody who's just sort of like, took it out of the box, followed the instructions and put it up. Right. And, and I think sort of in a lot of ways we're, we're, we're thinking about the people who kind of uh, do the, more of the latter, right. You know, maybe if they're ready to start doing all that hacking, they can go to your website, hobbybroadcaster.net and really dive in deep. So we want to make sure people know that they want to learn more, but let, so you've got, you know, a station that can gun, you know, up to about a mile in, in most cases. I'm impressed. I had no idea that you could legally broadcast a mile radius around that's a big, tiny radio station to my yeah. mind. I thought we were talking about in the home. And so vo- folks who do this, like, do you have a sense for like, uh, do you know people who are really treating this like broadcast stations? Like they're really treating it more like a radio station rather than just sort of a convenient way to send audio around their house. I have quite a few members on our, our community forum who actually come from the broadcast world who have either worked on the engineering side or are production rats and they put these stations up because they want to be able to have something that sounds like a real radio station and they they've taken it to the nth degree where not only where they have very good programming and might have even invested into a small automation system but they have audio processing which rivals their commercial counterparts you mean the processing the eq that gives it that big radio sound right that's kind of what you mean by the processing uh, processing in addition to equalization as far as a compressor limiter and um, you know that type of uh, multi-band audio processing, which really gives it the punch that you would need to cut through the noise. Right. And for people to kind of maybe even hear your signal and think, oh, hey, here's a new full-fledged radio station in my town that I didn't know about. <laughs> Have I died and gone back to the 1980s? Like, <laughs> exactly. Radio. You know, and it's worth pointing out that uh, Radio Survivor, as a radio show, is heard on two Part 15 radio stations that are operated much in this fashion. Uh, we are heard on AM 690 Underground Radio in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hello, everybody on AM 690 Underground Radio. And on Real Free Radio in Polka, West Virginia. And hello to Real Free radio how exciting and so this is partly why we know about i've been following it for a long time but i i'm not an expert that's why we wanted to talk here with uh bill defelice he is the webmaster for hobbybroadcaster.net this is radio survivor the sound of strong communities my name is paul reese with me is eric klein and i can't wait to build my first radio station i know well we've been talking about am stations and Bill, you also mentioned that there are these Part 15 regulations which allow you to transmit without a license also for other broadcast bands. So it's also possible on the FM dial. Isn't that correct? That is correct. 
And that doesn't seem to be a big emphasis for folks who are, say, on your on your website in the forums on hobbybroadcaster.net. Why is that? Well, there's a real reason because the FCC Part 15 regulation that governs uh, operating on the FM band is very, very restricted. It's done by field strength only. And the field strength that's allowed, which according to the regulation is 250 microvolts per meter, which is measured at a distance of three meters away from the radiator, it's you're you're lucky if you can actually cover a house, to be honest with you. Yeah, that's not very far. I mean, just, you know, I mean, I don't have a field strength meter, so I'm, I'm completely incapable of measuring that. But just going off of sort of my, my common understanding, what you just said, I mean, just simply measuring that three meters away, that's just a hair under 10 feet. That doesn't sound like a lot of power. So, But yet you can go to Best Buy, you go to Amazon, and you can buy this a little transmitter for your car, right? And you, you know, right. in order to uh, put your cell phone or your, or your smartphone your or your CD MP3 player, man. or at one point your CD disc man over your or uh, radio in your car if you don't have an input. Is that all operating under these same rules? Well, they're supposed to be. A lot of these transmitters, even though they may have an FCC certification number on it, making it supposedly compliant, we've done testing of the Part 15 FM transmitters, and a lot of them output a signal far greater than what's allowed legally. Huh. Interesting. And so if someone says, oh, you could do this, uh, do this FM part 15 unlicensed transmitting and I can, I cover blocks and blocks. It means they're probably operating out of range from what the FCC allows. Exactly. And simply because it is met, it is based upon how far your signal goes. Yeah. basically. And it, and it sounds like because the FCC has made the FM version of this part 15 micro radio much, much harder to have any fun with at all. Much more restrictive, yeah. yes. And, and it's interesting, right? Because this varies from country to country, doesn't it? I mean, I think there's different rules in Canada. There's different rules. I don't even know if they have these rules in the oh. UK. And then in, in, in New Zealand, uh, they have a part of the band, FM band, that's reserved where you can use up to a watt of power, which is a huge amount of power by comparison. They need more people doing more radio <laughs> on the outskirts of town in New Zealand. Yeah, right? apparently. They want to let people Yeah, free. exactly. So is there much discussion at uh, in your, the forums there at hobbybroadcaster.net about the FM dial stuff, or is it really just the AM dial? It's mostly the AM primarily, but there there is some talk with the FM. Just to give you a little background, when uh, which was the impetus for making my site, I put in a campus radio station for one of the high schools at the district that I worked in. And I was actually able to, able to give them an FM signal within their building. Uh, Paul, you're probably familiar with a company called LPB, which is now long gone. I actually, I'm not. I've never heard of them. <laughs> LPB, LPB, which was low power broadcasting. Hmm. They made a lot of the carrier current equipment back in the 60s and 70s okay. and a little bit in the 80s for college and high school radio. The folks over there did an FM installation using what they call radiating or leaky coax, hmm. where you would inject the FM signal into the cable. You would bury the cable in the ceiling of the building. And at least according to the documentation I got from them, you measured the part 15 field strength at the exterior of the building at three feet away from the exterior wall, which is what I did for our project. And it worked fairly well considering the budget constraint I was in. That's so you're in you're in essence wiring up the school building with a cable that acts as a radio antenna 
Correct. For, for this high school radio station that you built on the FM dial, all legal, non-pirate And because radio. it's staying mostly within the confines of the of the building. The high, cable. That it's not really then a broadcast very far outside, right? So it's, it's a matter of keeping it within those bounds. And this was an FM signal or an AM signal? That was an FM signal. That was an we FM had, signal, wow. We had a range master on top of our building. There's actually a third rule that comes involved with AM, which deals with both carrier current and free radiating, which allows you to have as much signal as you as you need within your campus uh, perimeter. But when you get out to the edge of your perimeter, your signal strength has to be equivalent to what is dictated under fifteen two oh nine. So let, let's I, talk a little bit about that. Actually, I'm, I, um, so you're talking about carrier current is leaky coax, and carrier current is something we've talked about here in Radio Survivor before. But I think it's worth revisiting. Yeah, it's a wonderful because radio it's really where a lot of know more about here. Yeah, it's where a lot of college radio gets started, right? And so, can you can you tell us like what is this carrier current? It's AM broadcasting, and it's legal, low power. You don't need a license, but but what what is it actually? Carrier current is the um, the method of placing an AM radio signal onto the power lines using a special coupler, which couples the RF signal, the radio signal, onto those wires. So back in the days when it was really popular, you plugged in your radio to the electric outlet, which of course was acting like the antenna, bringing the signal into the actual radio receiver. And didn't it? Weren't they also able to use the plumbing? Some places actually use the plumbing. I had read a case of somebody using a sewer pipe, and they were supposedly shut down by the FCC back in the day. So it have to uh, be a metal sewer pipe. It couldn't be PVC. Correct. And the whole idea is that you know, in something like a school or or even a could be a corporate campus, could be any sort of private property or or, or you know defined property environment, you could have a fairly strong radio signal. Provided it doesn't really go very far off of that, the property boundary. Is that about the, the principle of it? Pretty much. Also, keep in mind that the power transformers that are up on the poles are optimized for 60 hertz, which happens to be America's power line frequency. Mm-hmm. So they're very inefficient about passing RF. So you can't even really get the AM signal to jump over the transformer with any sort of efficiency. So the, 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 by the very nature of the, the power system, you couldn't have like a home carrier current system and think that, oh, I'm going to cover my whole neighborhood with this because it's going to pretty much get filtered out by the time it gets to your power pole. Depends on your neighborhood because I'm in a small neighborhood where the transformer is actually in the center of our neighborhood. So since all these wires are connected on one side of the transformer, you could actually cover your neighborhood because the carrier current signal is going to follow those lines into everybody's home. Wow. And that would be legal? There is the rule that you have to have a certain field strength. The problem is with any of these rules that had field strengths, most people aren't going to have access to a $10,000, $15,000 field no. strength. <laughs> and wow. The, one of the reasons we're so excited about carrier current in general is because it was the one, it was, as I understand it, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's one of the, the dominant technologies that allowed college radio stations to build themselves. This is what people used to make college radio in the, the 20th century. Dick Crompton of LPB saw that vision in 1960, and he ran with it. And he was pretty much the uh, the person in his company to get carrier current into all these colleges. Huh? Tell us more. What? what who, who are you talking about? Dick Crompton was the uh, the principal of LPB Broadcast, okay. which was the company that built all the carrier current transmitters and power line couplers. Wow! And so, Bill, how did you get interested? 
in part 15, unlicensed low-power broadcasting? Well, back when I was uh, a very preteen, I had built, if you recall, Radio Shack. They had these these little kits with the, uh, oh, the yes. red perforated boxes called the P-Box kit. I had built an AM wireless microphone, of all things, mm. back when I was six or seven years old. And that kind of got me into modulating carriers. And by the time I got into my teens, I was lucky enough and fortunate enough that I got involved with uh, my local town's 330-watt uh, FM radio station, which had gone on the air six months prior to me joining. Wow. And so this was a commercial station? No, it was a non-commercial. It was located at our high school. Oh, wow. Okay. And so you were able to do broadcasting as a high school student, on, and that kind of you, you got the bug. I got the bug, and the funny thing was, when I got the bug, even though this was back in the days when AM radio was king, and you had all these superstar disc jockeys, I was so focused on the technical end that that was pretty much what I wanted to do. But of course, I got beaten up by every student saying, "If you're going to be involved, you have to be on the air too." So I was like, "Okay," and I'm I'm glad that I actually got that because I got to learn a lot more about the other side of radio thanks to being involved behind the microphone. Mm -hmm. So you did this in high school. Then then what happened? What caused you to sort of stay with uh, the hobby broadcaster ethos? Well, there are lots of things. I was always an experimenter. I, you know, how today's uh, people with the uh, maker community and Arduinos and Raspberry Pis build their own little projects. I was always involved with something that emitted a radio signal. And then, you know, it just kind of grew and, you know, I would experiment with that. And by happen chance, um, a friend of mine introduced me to a person who was on the air at a 50 kilowatt station. And they asked if I wanted to start engineering at their stations. And I said, sure, why not? So, of course, I got back into legal broadcasting, which renewed my interest in part 15. Bill DeFelice of HobbyBroadcaster.net. You're the webmaster there at that website. We're talking about legal small radio that's available to everybody, uh, otherwise known as part Part 15. 15. And is there any way at all, I have a feeling I know the answer to this question, is there any way at all to know how many people are doing this in the United States? How many part 15 radio stations are there? Well, it's, it's, it's in a way it's difficult to know because since it's just a small niche community, there's not like a clearinghouse that actually has every station on on a map. There is a map that's available on Google of part 15 radio stations, and my site even has a directory of them. But the problem is people go in and out of the hobby or a school station might actually acquire or be lucky enough to get a license and they discontinue their part 15s and there's no notification. Exactly. I wonder, so I guess one of the next questions I have for you is we may have listeners out there of Radio Survivor who just for the first time in their lives got excited about the idea of of building a Part 15 radio station, possibly at a school, at a high school or at a middle school or at at an elementary school. I'm certainly um, contemplating this as we speak. Uh, How do you start? What's the first step? Well, the the thing would be obviously to get a mission and figure out what you want to accomplish with it. It depends if they want to use it as a teaching tool or they want to do something else with their station. I have elementary schools that purchased a small little talking house transmitter and they use it for announcements while the parents are dropping their kids off at their buildings. So, you know, it's, it's very limited use, but at least they're able to disseminate messages to their 
children's parents without the without the parents getting out and coming into the yeah, building. Car messages. I like it. You know, I've heard of people using uh, those transmitters to broadcast uh, holiday music to synchronize with their light displays around their house. That's very popular. A lot of people tend to go for the FM signal with that. And sometimes it takes a little creativity because with such a low signal, they may have to scoot the transmitter closer to the street as people go and park and watch the uh, the light display. Because the further away the transmitter is, depending if it's one that's compliant or maybe underpowered, that would make the signal a little iffy at the uh, car end. So, so folks want to figure out, you know, what, what is the mission of their station is sort of the first thing. So they, if they figure that out, then uh, what's their next step, especially, you know, in terms of like finding a transmitter and, and getting it all set up? Well, um, this is going to sound a little self-serving. That's okay. But That's have, why we asked yeah, you. That. You're on the radio. <laughs> we we for think a you're reason. an authority. So please go ahead. I, I have plenty of resources on my site that are open to the public to figure out you know, what Park 15 radio is, how it's used, what they can use it for. And I have quite a few educational stations that have already been profiled. I've got one where high schools and even elementary schools have used Part 15 radio to teach the kids media production, mm-hmm. how to how to you know, the journalism aspect about it, learning how to write, um, how to present themselves on the air. There are just so many great things that the schools can harness this for. And that's one reason I'm excited about it being used in education. And and that website you're referencing is hobbybroadcaster.net. That's correct. And Bill, um, are you a broadcaster yourself? Are you currently running any of these Part 15 stations? I do have a station located at the hobbybroadcaster.net world headquarters, if you, if you will. But I also have, because we do the transmitter evaluations, I have a bunch of these transmitters going all the time because it's one way to evaluate the long-lasting durability, the mean time between failure, to see just how rugged and how dependable these transmitters are. What do you play on your station? Um. I'm one of those people who love the oldies, and I play oldies from the 50s all the way up to about 1992. And do you know if you have any listeners? Do you ever ever hear from listeners? Well, I have my neighbors coming up to me and saying, why don't you play this song once in a while? (laughs) (laughs) Well, hey, right? So it's like neighborhood radio there, right? Hyper-local neighborhood radio. you're, You're playing it off a computer, I imagine? Exactly. Yeah. I actually use a small broadcast automation system called Station Playlist, which is very easy for most people to grapple. Plus, it's very budget friendly. You know, there's actually a long history of this sort of neighborhood broadcasting, uh, you know, both, um, you know, sort of in terms of like a school campus and, and, and sort of what Bill is doing. And then in Japan, there's this movement called Mini FM that started in the 80s that was also based upon doing legal unlicensed uh, broadcasting. It was on the FM dial in Japan where they have slightly different rules. And it it, it grew up in Tokyo, which is an incredibly dense environment where even if you have a signal that only goes out a few hundred feet, uh, that's still catching a whole lot of people with the idea of it's it's community radio in a way that it's a small number of people who get it. And you might even do something called a radio party where you put on a transmitter and if people get it, you say, come on over, bring a guitar, uh, <laughs> bring something to read and join in the fun. Uh, there's a long tradition, I think, of, of people uh, you know, using the airwaves in, in this way. And, and certainly it seems like the community 
around hobbybroadcaster.net, your website, Bill, there's a lot of sort of folks who are, who are really trying to optimize and hacking it and who really get into the technical aspects too, trying to try looking at it like a challenge to stay legal, right? And to, to be sure that you're adhering to the uh, rules that constrain your broadcast equipment uh, on the dial, but at the same time, seeing if they can get the most out of it, the best audio quality, the best distance. Um, you know, is that part of the fun of this hobby is, is sort of like it is with, you know, a lot of things trying to optimize it. Exactly. It's like how uh, amateur radio has a thing called QRP, which is using a very small amount of RF power to make contacts. We as part 15 operators, uh, we already have that small power and that's all we're granted. So part of the sport or the challenge is to optimize that signal to get out as far as you can still while maintaining the legal aspect of your coverage area. Wow. Um, I, I, I hope people are getting excited here because I think the opportunity to broadcast even to, to a small number of people is exciting because, I mean, I think even if you compare – part 15 broadcasting where you might be covering a quarter, half full mile on the AM dial, the number of people you can reach depending on the city and where you are could actually be fairly high. And you compare that to something like internet broadcasting, or you compare that even to podcasting where you may, your sort of audience is infinite in, in, in principle. It's potentially everybody, but in practice it's, essentially nobody. Yeah, because it's hard to let people know about your signal. And I know that, you know, many, you know, licensed stations, college stations, community stations that have an internet broadcast, many of them, their average number of people listening online can be under 100, even for really well-known stations because of the very fact that there's just so many stations out there. Yeah. And it seems to me, Bill, that in, in some places, especially in an urban area, you might have 100 listeners to your, to your Part 15 station. It's hard to take that census. You'll never be in the Nielsen ratings. But is that plausible? Do you think that there are folks out there who have that many listeners? I don't know about 100, but it's certainly possible because if you're in a high-density population, uh, maybe an apartment building or something, um, it's certainly possible you're going to get a lot more people listening or at least have the chance of having a lot more people listening than you would out in a rural area where the houses are, who knows, maybe eighth of a mile apart from each other. Right, yeah. right. So uh, just kind of to wrap up here, Bill DeFelice, webmaster of hobbybroadcaster.net. Um, if somebody's got their interest peaked right now and they're sort of like, oh, wow, maybe there's these things I could do. Uh, I mean, what would be your encouragement? How would you sort of tell somebody who's sort of uh, starting to get a little little excited about the idea, uh, sort of both settle their fears that maybe that they're going to have the FCC at their door, but also, you know, uh, you know, comparing it to this idea of like, well, I mean, how many people can I reach? What, what would you say to encourage someone to kind of learn more and maybe take the leap into into this sort of hobby broadcasting? I would invite them to come over to my website because there are plenty of resources there that spell things out in a very simple and friendly manner. And then, of course, you can look at the stations that are already out there by looking at the station profiles, which profile everybody from a lone individual who wants a station for a hobby all the way up to uh, schools or even businesses that have actually taken the Part 15 and used it for serving a small segment of a population. So there's no restrictions then sort of on, on the content in the same way that there might be a restriction on a low power FM or, or a, a, a non-commercial station, a business or any number of clubs or groups or organizations could run one of these stations too. 
Exactly. I actually had a forum member who runs an RV park and they actually have a station right on their RV campgrounds that people can listen to as well. Lots and lots of ideas. Yeah. It's so, it's so wonderful to think about. I mean, in this day of Facebook Live or, or YouTube, you know, like everyone has the access to to these audiences. And yet uh, here's here's a way to, to, to sort of do an end run around the Internet giants who, who may or may not seem as friendly as they once did in years to come to, to, the, to I guess, like to free speech and to uh, the ideas of accessing your audience. Like we never really know what the future holds with a giant a web company when it comes to allowing you an access to the audience that you might have built on their platform. And to take it all the way back to this 20th century technology, this exciting uh, radio, which started it all in the first place, the first wireless technology, um, I, I really like the idea of it um, being uh, kept relevant in, an, in, an, in, the, in the internet age. So uh, thank you so much for coming on Radio Survivor, Built to Fleece. Thank you. I appreciate you folks having me today. Oh, thank you so much again to Bill DeFelice for teaching me about phono oscillators. I can't <laughs> wait to go Wikipedia that one. What an amazing fact that people had their record players broadcasting to their AM radios in their homes in the 1930s in the United States. Yeah, and that would have been because, frankly, amplifiers and speakers were expensive. Yeah. And, you know, that was about the time in which uh, phonographs were shifting over from being purely acoustic, you know, with the big horns. Oh, yeah, yeah. Where, where a record dog listening. You know, where with all giant. the audio was just created by that vibrating needle into the big horn. There uh -huh. was no electricity involved into being electrically run. Just but yes, a speaker and uh, and an amplifier was expensive, and so why not, not use the yeah. one that's already built into your radio? I couldn't stop talking about how cool I thought the Chromecast was, and now <laughs> my Chromecast is nothing compared to the phono oscillator that grandma might have had. Not and I, I have a similar grandma. history to Bill with this. Uh -huh. So when I was a kid, I had these Radio Shack electronics kits. Yeah, do we have to tell people that Radio Shack used to be a place where you could buy radio kits and not cheap toys and phones yeah. or uh, not a blank space in your local mall. I'll find a, I'll find a reference to it. Uh, but you it used is, to build radios. Yeah. It, you bought this kit at least in my time. So this would have been in the late seventies, early eighties. Uh, there would be this kit with lots of electronic components already on it mm -hmm. with springs. Mm -hmm. And then you took little wires to connect the different components to each other in the way that you might solder them together on, on an actual uh, PCB board. But instead you were sort of doing that. And almost every single one of them had a radio and or AM transmitter built These were into it. part 15 kits that you could buy. Yeah. And well, it was for, you could make all sorts of things. But right. one of the things you could make, yeah. And it was absolutely part 15. And it, I remember in particular, the uh, instructions told you you can. There was a little antenna, please, right? And uh -huh. it said your wire can't be longer than three meters. That's fun. So well, they wanted you to stay legal as a, even as like a ten year old. After talking to Bill DeFelice from HobbyBroadcaster.net about all of these, about tiny radio stations on the AM or even on the FM dial, I'm just so excited about the possibilities about what kind of tiny radio station I would want to build in my copious free time with all of my uh, vast amounts of friends and community members. And so I'm really curious about uh, if anyone out there in Radioland got excited about 
ideas. Yeah, we'd love to hear from you. What Have you stations done this? You do might you, make. Do you want to do this? What are your ideas? Drop us a line. Podcast at radiosurvivor.com. And of course, it's a good time to remind you that you can uh, get our show notes at radiosurvivor.com slash podcast. So we'll send you to hobbybroadcaster.net and we'll have links to a lot of the things we've talked about today so you don't have to try and write down the notes. Um, radiosurvivor.com slash podcast is where you go. And of course, we have articles. We've talked about Part 15 stations. Uh, there was a station called Kachung Radio, which still exists in yeah, Los Angeles. Wonderful example. Which is an internet station, and they run a little Part 15 AM station uh, in, I think it's in Japantown. I thought it was Koreatown. Maybe Koreatown, sorry, in uh, Los Angeles. Yeah. So we'll have links to that so you can go back and, and dive deep and learn more. It's, it's, it's a wonderful thing to learn about. And what's wonderful, of course, is that it's so easy to do, frankly. Yeah, it's such a such a wonderful low bar for starting a community station. We we often here on Radio Survivor talk about uh, slightly heavier lifts with community radio stations, even with the with starting web radio with a community with you know more than twelve people. It's but here's like a you could just have a party, like you were saying. You could build a time. You can have one night of community radio around one of these stations. Uh, and there's my no brain's reason, just on fire with this idea. There's no it. reason you just have to have one. Yeah, right. Right, so, you know. But you can turn it on and turn it off. Yeah, you could turn it on, you could turn it off. But let's just say, let's just imagine a situation in which maybe you have a a smallish town with with a downtown core, right, that gets a fair amount of traffic, maybe especially during like a festivals yeah. or during a uh, or during farmer's markets or things like this. You could actually put several transmitters all with the same program around so that you, you could cover more territory. You might have to uh, put them on slightly different frequencies because they might interfere with each other huh. in between. Yeah. But the idea is that you could sort of say, hey, tune in, and it could be on 1590, 1600, 1610, 1620 AM, and people might be able to listen to the same signal whether on the north, south end, east, or west end, right? There's no reason you have to have just one. You could create a network of these little transmitters. And I think one thing we I think uh, we didn't quite say in the interview, but that, that you should do before putting your, your station on the air is to listen on frequencies and to make sure that the frequency you're going to use isn't used by somebody else. And that could be a licensed broadcaster. Is that just best practices or is that an important legal disclaimer? It's, yes. So it's important legal disclaimer because if it turns out that uh, you put your station on a frequency uh, that is used by a licensed station, they they can complain uh-huh. and you would you would be in trouble. And especially because you might be uh, interfering with somebody's reception of that station in your nearby. You're, you're certainly not going to sure. overwhelm your local AM stations, but you might cause interference for a few blocks around and, and you should not do that. Plus, it means your radio station won't be heard well anyway. So you want to do is go, I would use your car radio. because It's probably the most sensitive radio you have, especially on the AM dial. Go out, just wherever you're going to put the station, your driveway, turn it on, scan the dial. Find find an empty space. Look for an empty space. Uh, very often, uh, the space uh, from 1600 up is pretty empty because that's the expanded band. It only came online within the last 20 years, okay. uh, which means older radios don't get it. So that's the caveat. Uh, but it also performs well for part 15 for these uh, unlicensed legal uh, AM transmitters and look around. So, you know, and also make sure, you know, cause maybe there's somebody else at a part 15 station that you can hear. You never know. <laughs> you never know. Let's, let's be good neighbors, right? There's no it. reason. I mean, this is what I think about the radio dial often. And this is something we talked about with uh, John Anderson, mm-hmm a number of weeks ago is that, 
you know, the radio spectrum being licensed in a monopoly fashion, I meaning you get a license, you use this one piece of spectrum and you use it all the time. That's just a historical happenstance. There's nothing natural about it. Why couldn't lots and lots of part 15 uh, broadcasters in a city or town coordinate and share a frequency. How cool would that be mm-hmm. that maybe sometimes in some parts of town, you tune into this frequency and it's someone playing reggae and you go into another one and someone's playing their podcast. You go another right. one and it's at a comedy club and you can listen into what's going on in stage. I'm, I'm very excited about pitching this idea to, to performance venues that I might be able to catch their ear. Like next time you have a live musical event, why not also broadcast it outside of your walls sort of as a, um, just as a community benefit, but also as a marketing tool. It's like, it's like it, right. It's a talking billboard in that case, yeah. right? A talking sign. You put in up a, a flyer that says tune in at 10 PM to hear the show. Exactly. I love it. You know, it, it, and it's, it's simple. And, and, and if you buy the, the type of transmitter, which is type accepted, which has been approved by the F- yeah. not type accepted, that's the wrong word, but it's been approved by the FCC yep. and you use it according to the instructions and you're in pretty good shape, right? Fun. So How you're, much you're, you're not a pirate. Cost? We didn't talk about that. They, no one ever talks. They about cost. That. They cost. You know, anywhere from from like a hundred and some dollars all the way up to like the thousand dollar mark, depending on how okay. robust you want and and how plug and play it is. Uh, but you can certainly learn more there at hobbybroadcaster.net. Yeah. I think uh, that that would be what I would consider the resource and a place where you can really trust it. Um, you know, we're not here to give people their their buying suggestions, so uh, people can go look that up themselves. I think. I th- we're we're doing this because it's exciting to us to think about people out there uh, doing radio, doing it themselves. Exactly. Right. Uh, I mean, again, you know, there's, and, and here's a little crack in the pavement, right? Right. You know, and, and I God understand grass. that people often feel like, well, if I'm not reaching thousands and millions of people, right. And we've talked about this with regard to podcasting, That's certainly right. here, um, that I'm not doing it, but this ability to reach, have this massive reach for the average person is a really, really recent phenomenon. Yeah. And, and it's so much more of a potentiality than it is a reality for most people. Right. Because even if you think about, well, I've got five, 600 friends on Facebook, the number of people who are actually seeing what you post because of the algorithms and how it all does, how it all works may actually be relatively small and small can be good. Not everything needs to be massive and yeah. big. Small can be fun. And as we've talked before, you might have uh, a performance of some sort of live performance and you have a have a venue where maybe there's only 25 seats and you fill those 25 seats, you feel great, right? Full house and it's great. You might be able to get 25 people on your little part 15 radio yeah. station, especially if you're in the middle of like, you're in the middle of like Brooklyn or or you're in a, or a downtown Seattle even. You know, you, you would be able to get a lot of people listening to your and station. I'm just excited also about um, sort of defeating the, the 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 algorithm that internet giants have put up uh, in in our way. Uh, they've given us permission to use their websites for free to communicate with our friends and family and neighbors, and yet the the algorithm, which clearly was designed to uh, to help them sell more ads to our friends, family, and neighbors, uh, really, you it, you never know how to get through to that thing. You can. And so, so to have this other means of communication and, and, and putting some energy into that, uh, it just makes me happy to think about, to think about uh, broadcasting on the radio to your friends and family and neighbors, mostly your neighbors in this mm-hmm, case, since mm-hmm. if your friends and family might be far away using these part 15, uh, this part 15 technology, it's really fun. And it could also be an adjunct to an online station. 
right? Yeah. It could be just, you, you could do both. The possibilities are endless. Right, the possibilities are you endless. You set up your own phono oscillator <laughs> in your home. Your own phono oscillator. But we do, we do want to hear from you. Uh, what do you think of this idea? Do you, think it's, uh, do you think it's plausible? Do you think there are different ways that this can be done? Do you know about some great Part 15 installations? And of course, there's still probably some carrier current stations, as we mentioned, on college or high school campuses broadcasting through the power lines. Uh, don't try that yourself. <laughs> Unless, unless you're working with someone who's a qualified engineer, let's just let's just uh, put out that little caveat there because playing with 120 20 volts out in the socket um, is not something someone who's not qualified to do should be messing with. Um, but what do you think about that? Drop us a line, podcast at radiosurvivor.com. Of course, you can tweet us at Radio Survivor, and we are on Facebook as well. We're easy to uh, get a hold of. And, of course, uh, we'd love it if you would – Listen to us every single week, whether you listen on your favorite radio station where you're listening to us now, or whether you subscribe to our podcast. It's available on Apple Podcasts, on Stitcher, and every major podcast platform. We recently added TuneIn to that, so you can listen to us anywhere online. It's great when you subscribe, because that way you get the show every single week. And if you can, if you could spare a few stars, you take a moment and give us a short review. Uh, that's wonderful, because that is the algorithms as you were talking about, Eric? <laughs> it helps people find the show Sometimes if they're the if they might be interested in some algorithm. of the things we're talking about. It builds the audience, builds the awareness for great community media and great radio everywhere. Uh, we are also a listener and reader supported enterprise. Uh, so anything you could do to help us keep doing what we do. We'd really appreciate it. Go to radiosurvivor.com slash support to learn more about how you can help Radio Survivor keep surviving. And of course, we're at radiosurvivor.com where it's more than just a podcast where you can get community radio news, college radio news, read about carrier station uh, (laughs) tours uh, and, and all sorts of things that delight us about radio. We try to share the things that are fun and delightful and and make us smile much of the time. And that's all at radiosurvivor.com. Hello, Radio Survivor listeners. My name is Eric Klein from the future. That episode of Radio Survivor that you just listened to first aired in December of 2017. It was episode number 120. And uh, it was not abridged in any way today on on this episode. You heard the full conversation with Bill D. Felice of Javi Broadcaster. And we just wanted to bring it back because here we are uh, a year and a half later and We've we've dove even deeper into the ideas that um, what makes radio so special and even the community radio that we love and college radio and low power FM, the stations that we that truly move us. What makes them special is um, just how participatory they are and what could be more participatory than building your own radio stations to um, to put to good use. And, you know, since episode 120, since back in December of 2017, we here at Radio Survivor have, we've done a lot of uh, new and fun work regarding uh, transmission arts, which is really, you know, as far as the creative uses of radio technology, pretty much um, one of the pinnacles of that idea. And, Uh, So the idea of uh, building your own tiny radio stations completely within the legal limits that the FCC has set up in the United States and and putting those ideas to work in new and exciting ways uh, really has become one of the themes of this show over the past year and a half. And 
on that score since I have a little bit of time left to share with you. This was episode number 194, this rebroadcast of our conversation about Part 15 Tiny Radio Stations. On the last week's episode, we talked to Wave Farms Executive Director Galen Joseph Hunter. Wave Farm, which is one of um, our, uh, well, Wave Farm is affiliated with a radio station in upstate New York, WGXC, and they broadcast Radio Survivor Weekly. But Wave Farm is also a transmission arts organization, which don't listen to me blab about what a transmission arts organization is. Listen to that episode, uh, episode one, number 193 there on Radio Survivor, the most recent episode uh, before this one on the podcast feed. And you can find those either where you get your podcasts or on the website, radiosurvivor.com slash podcast. And we talked all about transmission arts and... That was a really fun episode. Before that, on episode number 192, we spoke with two of the leaders, two members of the Radio Preservation Task Force, which is a project of the Library of Congress, which has also been a major theme of Radio Survivor in the last couple of years, uh, preserving the sounds of radio, the archives of what radio um, has sounded like throughout the decades, all of the 100-year the span of decades that radio broadcasting has been on the air, um, it's kind of a brand new project. It's not something that uh, previous generations put huge amounts of collective effort into. And that work is um, being done right now at this very minute to sort of figure out how to proceed, uh, both preserving what's left, the tapes that are that are on the shelves deteriorating or in storage units in danger, uh, how those things should be preserved, but also how it all should be organized so that future generations and current academics and whatnot can access these sounds to understand all of the kinds of radio, which is as diverse as the planet itself. Um, so exciting. So yeah, episode 192 was all about saving radio history. And then prior to that, we spoke with uh, one of the people who run a low-power FM radio station and we talked a lot about how they approach their uh, producing their one hour of hyper-local daily news for that low-power radio station that's extremely um, volunteer-run. And so how did they take what is essentially a budget of zero and turn it into a really useful hour of uh, local news coverage uh, for their community, which is something that I think every radio station uh, that that is a, that is non-commercial and not a NPR station has to struggle with, since it's participatory, since the community members create it, since there's no budget whatsoever usually. Uh, and that was a really fun episode as well. That was episode number 191. We called it How a Low Power FM, LPFM, Produces an Hour of Hyper-Local News Every Weekday. And then uh, the episode prior to that, we had a really fun and deep discussion with one individual radio artist about their work, about the work that Amanda Dawn Christie uh, has been focusing on uh, for their entire radio transmission arts career. And if, if the idea of art for the radio with the radio is sort of um, a new concept, you could do worse than to understand uh, what, how one artist approaches their work in transmission arts. And that was episode number 190 with Amanda Dawn Christie. Well, my name is Eric Klein. On behalf of Jennifer Waits and Paul Reese Mandel, who also produced this here radio program, uh, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next week.